0: is in Israel Um, so we are super excited to have a guest speaker today so please join me in welcoming Justin Francis the associate pastor from New Life Bridgeport. Thank you. Good morning New Life. Let's try that again. Good morning New Life. Lincoln Park. All right that's more like it. Thank you. I'm Pastor Justin Francis. I'm associate pastor at New Life in Bridgeport so that's close to the White Sox stadium. I'm not a White Sox fan, okay, so don't ask me about that. I'm a Miami Marlins fan. We'll get into that a little later, why that is, because I'm from Miami. But anyway, (laughs) I'm a pastor, but I'm also an artist, musician, producer. I do Christian hip-hop and reggae, so I'm going to start us off with a song before I get into my sermon. And so uh, this song is inspired by Acts chapter 17, uh, where Paul says that, Um, It's in God that we live, we move, and we have our being. And so the title of this song is Without You. So basically it's just saying we can't do anything without the Lord Jesus directing our lives, without him running our lives. And so I want to teach you the chorus. It's very simple, okay? So y'all going to get with me, okay? See, the 9 a.m., they got with it now, okay? So I'm expecting it's a little later, so I'm going to spend a little more energy from you guys. So it's going to be a little type of, you know, kind of like an aerobics class a little bit. You know, we're going to, you know, fish pump and clap some other stuff. So the chorus goes like this. We can't make it without you, Lord. We can't make it without you. Sing. without you, Lord. We can't make it without you, Lord. You. You're just without you. And then. The second part you point to yourself, I can't make it without you, Lord. I can't make it without you sing. I can't, without you, Lord. I can't make it without you. Okay, sounds like y'all got it. Please stand to your feet and we're gonna, you know, party together real quick. All right. You can start that track for me, thank you. Don't be afraid to worship the Lord. Turn it up for me, please. Put your hands together like this. Clap, clap. Oh, y'all on beat, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Turn it up a little bit. Hey, everybody fist pump like this. Fist pump, fist pump, hey. Fist pump, fist pump, hey. fist, pump fist pump, hey. Y'all yeah, ain't know you was coming to a party at church today. <laughs> hey, hey. All right, let's clap our hands together again. Y'all sing it with me. More volume we can't make it without you lord we can't make it without you i can't make it without you lord i can't here we go check it out party people like a free throw we can breathe slow when we peep those in the sheepfold. fold and the equal to the one coming back for the sequel to destroy all the evil we can't make it without you lord carry my cross the word is my sword yes I'm from the county kind of day Miami's my city we freeing the slaves but right now I stay in the shop. cannot deny it? we cannot make it if we don't rely on you uh, only we God and son saving the rotten ones but you're going straight to hell do what you talk for son fun. So my whole baby never trippin', I'm hopin' it's trippin' it still be broken I got vision, smoke with the cannabis I bet mean, you're a to watch this and I'm trying to convince your life and I purchase You a Chris Part the people face it You ain't ever gotta get wasted Just to have a good time You ain't gotta get naked You ain't never gotta shake it You're made in the image of God Don't face it You're in the image of God Can't replace it You're in the image of God So you're not a product of chance we need to make it Nothing ever nobody could ever Separate us from the love of Jesus He's the only one that's free us He can make all things new And we can't make it without you Sing it can't make it without you know, Lord can't with me. I can't can't make it without you Lord I can't make it without Hey, clap your hands like this Just clap your hands Can't make it Hey, without you. I'm gonna sing the chorus again One, two Everybody sing it with me, hey We can't make it without you Lord Put your hands in there like this Wave it. Hey We make it without you. Hey, we gonna go back to the fist pump Fist pump right now Hey, hey, fist pump, fist pump Without Ain't nothing wrong with losing a few calories in church <laughs> If you're excited about Jesus, let me hear you make some noise Hey, we can't make it without you you lord we can't make it without you i can't make it without you lord i can't make it without you make some noise thank you for getting with me praise god man all right you may be seated thank you i appreciate you guys getting with me the whole service will not be a concert But I do do concerts every now and then, so. But uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Glad to be here. My name, again, is uh, Pastor Justin Francis. Uh, I'm the associate pastor at New Light Bridgeport. Again, that's close to the White Sox Stadium on the south side. And I greet you in the mighty and matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua, the Messiah. The one name that every knee will bow to, every tongue will confess one day that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I wanna give a few facts about me. I am a hip hop recording artist and I have about uh, five albums out. And uh, I was born and raised in the beautiful city of Miami, Florida. Anybody been to Miami before? Okay, okay. So obviously I grew up with weather similar to Chicago, you know, obviously. People ask me if it's ever snowed in Miami and I said, yeah, once. In nineteen seventy seven and it made the news. It was so big of a deal. <laughs> my parents are both raised in the born and raised in the beautiful island of Jamaica. Anybody been to Jamaica? okay, so I'm pretty sure you ain't been to where my family's from. You probably went to the nice tourist area, not to the hood. <laughs> but my parents are both from Jamaica, and uh, my dad is currently a pastor. He's been a pastor my whole life. I was born and raised in church. And he also uh, worked in the stock market with Merrill Lynch, and he owns uh, real estate. So my dad's been an entrepreneur my entire life, and I kind of inherited some of that uh, spirit from him. My mom's a retired nurse and daycare director, and I'm the youngest of four children. So I'm the most important of the family. I'm the baby of the family. you know. (laughs) I was saved at the early age of four years old. Yes, four years old. You heard me right, four years old. Now, a lot of people doubt that. Like, how could a kid understand the gospel? And so, my retort is, how can an adult understand the gospel? <laughs> well, think about it. The gospel is something that the Holy Spirit has to illuminate you to understand. You can't. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit because they're spiritually discerned. And the Bible tells us that we start out in this world spiritually dead, according to Ephesians 2 verse 1. So, A child could understand the gospel the same way an adult can understand the gospel because it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to understand the word of God. So, yes, I was saved at four years old. So what that means is I've been walking with the Lord for 30 years. So I'm 34 years old now. And so I was baptized at five. And get this. I began preaching at seven years old. All right. Parents don't get any ideas about that because I do not recommend you do that. That's what's happened with me. I grew up in a hyper-Pentecostal church where we'd regularly do backflips and the Holy Ghost helicopter on Sunday and hang for the chandeliers and all that stuff. You ain't have church if you ain't lost 20 pounds, okay? So I was preaching at a young age. Don't do it. You know, if your kid wants to preach, maybe they could read the Bible on a Sunday or, you know, train them up and when they're a little older. Now, obviously, if you come to Christ at a young age, we need to uh, see your life to see if you really bear fruit as an adult, of course. But there are times where God does save people at a very young age. So that was my story. And although I was born and raised in church. I did have seasons of struggle in my faith. Uh, I went to public school, and so there was peer pressure, you know, getting with girls, sexual sin. There was trying to be popular, you know, I got into a few fights. You know, I ain't going to tell you my win-loss record. You don't need to know that, you know. (laughs) But I really didn't own my faith until I got older because I was not discipled. That's something missing in a lot of churches. It's, it's not enough to just show up on Sunday or Wednesday in a small group. Like, who's walking life with you? Who's the more mature believer answering your questions and really showing you how to study the Bible? I really didn't have that. Um, sorry, Dad, if you're watching. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was not discipled, unfortunately. And so I struggled in my faith. And I came to a point in my life where I was like, man, am I just a Christian because my parents raised me this way? If they were Buddhists, I'd be a Buddhist right now. If they were Muslim, I'd be a Muslim right now. I really hadn't came to a point where I actually investigated to see if these claims of Christ were true. And so I ended up enrolling in a local college in Florida where I took an intro to religion class and a world religions class. And so the cool thing about this uh, class was that we actually went to different religious sites and we spoke to the different religious leaders. I got a, a, a Quran from the imam. That's the a Muslim version of a pastor. Um, we went to the mosque. I went to different religious sites. And, you know, I did my own research, spending years learning about the Book of Mormon, Hindu, Buddhist literature, the Vedas and all this and I came to a point where I realized all these religions are pretty much teaching the same thing, except Christianity. Uh, most of these religions are saying, hey, man, hey, pray five times a day. And when you get to, you know, Allah on judgment day, we'll see what happens. He has to outweigh your good and your bad. So it's like, wait a minute. That's no assurance. Judaism, there's no temple to sacrifice for sin. They do Yom Kippur once a year. Well, what about all the other days of the year uh, that you're not going to the temple to repent? And you can't repent for one day in the whole year. What about all the sins you've been doing? No assurance. I looked at Hinduism, Buddhism. There's reincarnation. Well, who's in charge of reincarnation? The universe? Well, that's an impersonal force. So how do I know the standards of the universe when there's no way to know? No assurance again. But then Jesus steps on the sin on the scene in John 5. He says, whoever eats of this bread that I give will never hunger again. Whoever drinks of this living water that I give will never thirst again. And he guarantees me and all who trust in him eternal life. And the great thing about Jesus is that no one else in history did this. He told you he was going to die and rise again for sin. And then he actually did it. (laughs) That's somebody that I want to follow. That's somebody I want to put my trust in. Someone who says I can guarantee you a place in heaven because I'm fully God and I'm fully man. And when you trust in me and my death and burial resurrection, you have a guaranteed spot in heaven and you're guaranteed to be forgiven no ifs ands or buts about it that's somebody that we need to put our trust in today amen and so that was my journey christ paid for my sins he did things no one else could do jesus said things no one else could say and again he didn't stay dead but he rose again victoriously defeating death hell in the grave Unlike other religious leaders, Jesus is alive today. Buddha's dead, Muhammad's dead, but Jesus is alive, and he stands alone in history. Trust in Jesus today. And after solidifying my faith in Jesus, I felt called to be a pastor. So in order to be equipped for that, I ended up moving here to Chicago to attend Moody Bible Institute. And I was there from 2012 to 2017. I got my bachelor's and master's in pastoral ministry. And I've been at New Life since 2014. And I serve as the associate pastor at New Life Bridgeport, again, on the south side, close to the White Sox Stadium. Fun fact, Pastor Bobby was actually one of my professors at Moody in one of my favorite classes called Bible Intro. Another fun fact, there's a lady named Christine Leonard that most of you probably never heard of. That is Jeanette's mother. She is a close friend to me and my wife, and she goes to New Life Bridgeport. She's a dedicated member there, so she's like a mother figure to me out here in Chicago. So that's uh, Bobby's mother-in-law. And so I hope him and her have a great relationship because I know how it goes with mother-in-laws and son-in-laws sometimes, you know. But she's a great woman. She's one of our best friends, uh, Christine Leonard, the mother of Jeanette. I'm happily married. This year I will celebrate seven years of marriage by God's grace. Amen. You could clap for that. Amen. (laughs) Praise God. Yes. Anybody who's married tells you it's amazing, but it's not easy. But by God's grace, we continue to move forward. And I have a beautiful, energetic 11-month-old son, Justin Francis II, a.k.a. Baby Deuce. And uh, yes, uh, you know, pray for me. I do struggle with narcissism, so I name my son after me, Justin O'Neill Francis II. You know, I want to go for my dynasty like King Henry VIII. You know, second, third, fourth, fifth, let's just keep it going until Jesus comes back. That's my plan. I asked my wife, just let me name the first child, and you can name the rest of them. Just please, the firstborn son, let me name him after me, and she was gracious enough to bless me with that gift. So, well, that's enough about me. Um, thank you for listening, but what you really need to know about me is this. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who could save anybody. Amen, and that's the Lord Jesus. Someone who could save anybody from their sin. And I'm grateful for the Lord saving me at a young age. I'm grateful that I didn't have to waste years uh, in the world, wasting years and embarrassing myself and having all this regret. If you're young in Christ today, continue to stand firm because Christ is the way, the truth and the life. And our current series today is uh, entitled Parables, as it's already been mentioned And we're examining and diving into some of the most captivating parables that Jesus told the people of his day. And I've titled my sermon today, The Necessity of Forgiveness. The Necessity of Forgiveness. And so, what is a parable exactly? In the original language of the New Testament, which is Koine Greek, the word parable comes from the Greek word parabole which is an illustration that teaches, an illustration that teaches, or a symbol, or a foreshadow. And so Jesus, in his sovereignty, used different methods to teach people kingdom truth. Sometimes Christ simply recited scripture and explained the heart behind the written word. Other times Jesus taught through miracles, signs, and wonders, such as raising the dead, healing the sick. And Jesus even fed thousands of people through multiplying one kid's school lunch, If you remember, five loaves, two fish, right? You know, he took a dude's school lunch and fed thousands with it. And so, however, all throughout Christ's ministry, he spoke to people in parables. He told stories that people of his day could relate to using everyday examples. And so we're going to examine a powerful parable today in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 through 35. Again, that's Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 through 35. And I ask that as I read the scriptures, that you please stand in honor of God's word. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 through 35. Join me in the text today. And verse 23 says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We honor God's word by saying amen. And you may be seated. Join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, God. I pray you use me in a mighty way to edify the believers, Lord. Let me actually move out the way so your Holy Spirit can speak through me, God. And I pray if there's anyone here who has not bowed the knee to you, who has not repented and turned from sin and changed their mind about sin to trust in you, I pray today will be their day of salvation, God. Please illumine your scripture to your people. In Christ Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So our text today is going to focus on the events covered in the parable in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 through 35. But I want to pull back right before that. And I'd like to look at the conversation between Jesus and Peter that prompts this parable, because something prompted this parable to happen. And this parable, uh, many people call it the parable of the unforgiving servant uh, for obvious reasons. So right before this parable, Jesus teaches his disciples who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is. Then Yeshua instructs his audience on how to handle temptation and sin. Then after this, we hear about the parable of the lost sheep, which is a famous parable that talks about the shepherd going out when he has 99 sheep, leaving the 99, going for the one sheep and bringing that uh, sheep back. And there's rejoicing over the founding or finding of the sheep. And Jesus actually says in this parable that it is God's will that none of his sheep perish. And then Jesus then tells his disciples how to deal with sin among believers. So Christ is in the midst judging and ruling accordingly when we deal with sin his way, not our way. If we read Matthew chapter 18, it talks about how to deal with conflict. And if more of us obey the steps that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, there'd be a lot less conflict amongst believers. But oftentimes we default to our culture or how our parents raised us with dealing with conflict when it's laid out in the text in Matthew chapter 18. After this, and it says, when someone sins against you, the steps are all there to handle. And after this, when Peter asks his question about forgiveness, we're going to see how the conversation goes. So join me in uh, in Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, as we examine this situation and we go through the text. So in verse 21, it says this. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, if we're true disciples of Christ, I pray that's all of our desire today. And that's who we are or want to be. Then we are to forgive without keeping count. Some translations of verse 22 say we are to forgive 77 times. Others say 70 times seven. So, my mathematicians, how much is 70 times seven? Don't be afraid, you could yell it out. 490, I thank you for coming today. 490, 70 times seven. Now, (laughs) how many people are gonna sin against you 490 times, or even 77 times? Uh, Probably not that many, that's a lot of sin to sin against somebody. Maybe your spouse or your son, your kids or, you know, co-workers or something like that. And some people say this 490 or 77 is per day, not per lifetime, per day. Now, I lean toward that being the goal per day. And so I grew up on the King James, so I mostly heard 70 times 7. Now, we have 77 in the ESV. But don't miss the point that Jesus is making. It's not about the amount. The point is to forgive every offense, no matter the amount. See, Jesus uses a ridiculously huge number here to illustrate this point, that we are to forgive without keeping count. Can you imagine somebody trying to keep count about how much you've sinned against them? Hey, man, hey, that's sin number uh, 489. All right. You got one more before I forgive you. Okay, that's sin number 75. You got two more, bro, and it's over for you. That's not the point of the text. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is getting at. No, forgive as much as possible at all times. That is the goal. So what exactly is forgiveness? What does it mean to forgive? I'm glad you asked today. (laughs) The original word we translate as forgive, it means to give up a debt, to let it go, to remit, to give up. To keep no longer. That's forgiveness. Letting it go. To let go of the debt. We as the people of God are commanded to forgive. To let it go. Whatever it is, give it to God. And in our text today, which comes from Matthew 18, verse 23-35, through 35, Jesus gives a parable to illustrate the necessity of forgiveness. And so in this parable, we're going to look at what kingdom forgiveness looks like because he gives a very powerful example of kingdom forgiveness there's worldly forgiveness there's some shallow forgiveness the world will tell you this is how you forgive but we as kingdom people we have a standard that comes from the scriptures and that's what we are to follow and Jesus says this the kingdom of heaven is like a king who decided to settle his accounts with his servants as he began to settle the accounts one servant owed this king 10,000 talents now when I've read this as a child growing up in church. I never knew what a talent was, and no one ever broke down what a talent was. So I'm like, what? A talent? So somebody could sing or play an instrument? Like, what is going on? That's not what a talent means in this text here. So it's very important that we understand what a talent is so that we don't miss the significance of this story. So what exactly is a talent? In Old Testament times, a talent was a unit of weight equaling about 75 pounds. In New Testament times, around the time that this was written, a talent was a unit of monetary reckoning. So a way to reckon things in a monetary, monetary way. The value of one talent was the equivalent of close to 20 years of labor. So one talent was worth 20 years of work. So that's, that's big work right there. 20 years of work. Some of us in here aren't even 20 years old. That's working your whole life. (laughs) So 20 years of labor is one talent. In modern times, one talent would equal about $600,000. One talent, 600K. This is big money we're talking about. But what makes it even crazier is that this servant's debt is 10,000 talents. One talent, 20 years of labor, about 600K. Ten thousand talents—that represents a crazy, huge, incalculable amount, which in our terms today would be close to six billion dollars. Not six million dollars, six billion dollars. So this is the uh, amount of debt that this servant owes—six billion dollars equivalent. So in verse twenty-four, he owes his master close to six billion dollars which is 10,000 talents. And obviously the servant cannot pay his debt. So what does his master do? His master orders him to be sold along with his wife and kids and all that he had and payment was to be made. See, people being sold into slavery to pay off debts was a common practice at this time in history. And in many parts of the world, this still happens. In many parts of the world, people have a debt. They'll sell themselves into slavery or they'll sell one of their kids into slavery. And so while I'm not the biggest fan of the American credit card system, hey, I'd rather deal with a credit card than uh, deciding what family member we're going to sell into slavery. Thank God that's not how we're doing it. And so even in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see people sell themselves into slavery to pay off debts. So this is an extremely dramatic illustration. Remember... There's a six billion dollar debt, not six million, six billion. How many would want to be six billion in debt to somebody? That's almost like the U.S. debt. No, no, no. The U.S. debt's way more than that, like 70 trillion or something like that. <laughs> but six billion dollars of debt. And in verse 26, we see that this servant falls on his knees. He begs for mercy. Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity. The master forgives his servant. He releases him and he erases his debt. And after being forgiven, this servant goes out and locates one of his servants that owes him a debt. And this servant owes him a hundred denarii. He seizes him. He chokes him and says, pay what you owe. Now, before today, did anyone know what a denarii was? I know I I didn't know what a denarii was until I was studying for this text here. Again, if you don't know the historical context, this is why historical context is very important. We'll read all kind of things, all kind of units of measurement and money, and we don't know what's going on. And 100 denarii doesn't sound like a lot. Oh, yeah, that's $100. Okay, that's decent money, but that ain't crazy. But 100 denarii is a lot, actually. 100 denarii is the equivalent of $12,000 in our currency today. So this is what the other servant owes. So one dude owes six billion, the next dude owes twelve thousand. Now twelve thousand is a lot. I mean, hey, by show of hands, who wouldn't mind getting an unexpected twelve grand in the bank, right? You know, I didn't expect that, but praise you, praise the Lord. I'm gonna accept your blessings, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Twelve grand, unexpected. I didn't have to work for. it. But remember, compared to six billion that this wicked servant owed his master, 12 grand is nothing. 12,000 is chump change compared to six billion. So this 12K in debt servant pleads for mercy to the wicked six billion in debt servant and asks him for patience and mercy. And the servant with larger debt responds in a shocking fashion. You would expect, dude, you've just been forgiven of a crazy amount. Of course, you're gonna forgive the next person. Duh. Like that's what we would expect. But unfortunately, that's not what this servant does. He does the exact opposite. He actually throws this servant with a smaller debt than he owed in prison until he pays his debt. He doesn't show mercy and forgiveness. And the word gets out about this servant that was forgiven, throwing his servant into prison. And then he gets snitched on. (laughs) The other servants tell on him, hey, This is what's going on. And they tell the master what happens to him. And they were greatly distressed and reported to their master all that took place. This servant is summoned by his master and rebuked. The master responds, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus, as he ends the parable, he says something that should really sober us up, something that should really cause life introspection. He says this in verse 35 of our text. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's for us, the disciples of Christ. Now, there are many things we should take away from this parable. I believe the crux and the point of the parable at this point should be painfully clear. That God commands us all to forgive one another, but he gives us the grace and the power to make that happen. Again, God commands us all to forgive one another, but he gives us the grace and the power to make it happen. I'm so grateful that the God of the Bible isn't like all these other false gods. False gods say, do this, do that. And, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, hopefully you'll, you know, be right with me. We'll see. The God of the Bible says, no, I did it all already. I came down, lived the perfect life. God became man. The Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again. And so forgiveness has already been provided to us through Christ. See, as Christians, we don't live for the victory. We live from the victory. As we're fighting sin, we're not fighting for victory over sin. It's already been given to us through Christ. Now, in time, sure, you know, we're still uh, fighting against sin. We all struggle with different sins. But positionally in heaven, we're justified by God because when he sees us, when he looks at you, when he looks at me, if you're in Christ, God the Father sees God the Son. He sees his perfect record and Christ's perfect record is then credited into our account. That's a doctrine of justification. So God's already saved us and took care of us. And so we're commanded to forgive, but God gives us the grace and power to do it. Those who have been shown great mercy are expected to in turn show great mercy. A transformed heart has to result in a changed life that offers the same mercy and forgiveness that God has extended to us. To those of us who have been forgiven by God today, who in your life do you need to forgive? Who in your life are you holding back something against? Who in, who in your life do you need to ask them to forgive you? Sometimes it's us who has done wrong to someone and we haven't even had a conversation about it. Let God reveal that to you. If you're saved today, you've been forgiven by God through Jesus Christ, a debt that you can never even come close to paying. Our good deeds, our church attendance, paying money to charity, paying our offering, helping elderly cross the street, all these good things can never pay for our sin debt. Nobody's going to get to heaven and high five God. Hey, God, you made a good team, man. I did 50 percent and you did the other 50 percent. No, no. That's unbiblical. When we get to heaven, it's going to be all glory to you, Lord. From beginning to end, you saved me and you kept me. Thank you, Lord. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There won't be any boasting. You know you got your theology of salvation right if you're left with no room to boast about it. If you got any room to boast about your salvation, then your soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, you got it wrong. Because there's no room for boasting for any of us because Christ did it all from start to finish. Even the faith that you possess in Christ was a gift by God. (laughs) All glory to God. So our good deeds, nothing we can do. Uh, One pastor says it this way. He says, the only thing we contribute to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. (laughs) I'll say that again for the people in the back. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. You and I, we deserve hell, unfortunately. I know a lot of preachers don't talk that way. We deserve hell for eternity, but what a great God we serve to forgive us, to write our names in the book of life, and to treat us and view us as if we never sinned. Not because we're so good, but due to the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. We have new life. We've been forgiven and made new. And so in that spirit, through the Holy Spirit of God, he empowers us to forgive and we are regenerated and born again. Someone who denies forgiveness to others like this wicked servant that owed billions or someone who is unwilling to forgive shows that their heart has most likely not encountered the forgiveness of God. We're all wicked servants who have squandered God's grace. And thankfully in Christ, God did not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, Jesus paid our debt and set us free. How many today have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ today? I know I'm not the only one. You can talk back to me. Don't be afraid. And I thank God for his grace. I thank God for that freedom. Now we can live knowing that we've been forgiven and God calls us to share this merciful good news everywhere. I've been forgiven. Now let me show you how you could be forgiven. The word of God says this in Psalms chapter 103, verse 8 through 10 says this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he labor or harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. The Bible says that God would separate our sins as far as the east is from the west. How many people can measure the east to the west, uh, that, that distance? That's the point. You can't. That's how far God has separated our sins when we have placed our trust in Jesus. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Who's the us in this text? Is this the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the leaders? No, the us is the body of Christ, meaning every last one of us is commanded to be messengers of reconciliation. Not just the pastors, not just the leaders. Uh, Some of us, we think if we invite people to church, that's good enough. No, you're supposed to be sharing the gospel with them and trying to make disciples and you invite them to church. But we're not supposed to invite people to church so they can hear from the pastor. No, you are a a messenger of reconciliation for the world. There's people that are never going to step foot in church. You're going to be the only Jesus that they see. There's going to be people that uh, Pastor Bobby will never meet that God has placed you in their sphere of influence to reach them. You are a minister of reconciliation the day you get saved. I don't care if you've been saved for two years, 20, 30 years. The day you get saved, you know more than an unbeliever about God because you know God and they don't. (coughs) So you automatically know more about who God is and you can share the gospel. How can we hold grudges against someone else in light of all that God has already forgiven us for? I know it's difficult as the saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. However, as we stop and think about how much sin we commit and the fact that you and I deserve an eternity in hell due to breaking God's laws and falling short, we then must look back to Jesus, the king that forgives. We must forgive others because our largest debt has been forgiven for eternity. God is not into double jeopardy. When God forgives you of sin, he's not going to bring that back to charge you again. Jesus said it is finished. Past, present, and future sins were taken care of on the cross and through his resurrection. And now there's wisdom needed here. Forgiveness is commanded. We must let the hurt and pain go and attempt to make things right with those we've sinned against and those who have sinned against us. However, what's missing in a lot of Christian teaching about forgiveness is the fact that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Reconciliation is not always possible, but as long as you are alive, you can forgive. See, forgiveness is one way. You can forgive somebody, but reconciliation is two-way. It involves the other person. Sometimes the person we need to ask for forgiveness or wants our forgiveness has died, so you can't reconcile. Sometimes they're in prison or maybe we don't have a way to contact them. Sometimes they're incapacitated or in a coma. You may not be able to make things right. Some people cut us off and we don't have the opportunity to forgive them or ask for forgiveness. I asked this question in the first service. Let's see how honest y'all are. By show of hands, who here has been cut off by somebody before in their life? Okay, okay. It was just like the first service. only had like six uh, honest people, but it's okay. God knows. I know I've had people cut me off and I didn't even know what happened. They didn't even tell me like, man, they don't answer my text no more. Like what happened? But the word of God doesn't say we're supposed to do that. That's what the world does. You're supposed to try. You're supposed to attempt to reconcile with all people if possible. And it takes time. There are some sins that make a complete reconciliation impossible or unlikely. There's some family stuff that goes on. There's there's, there's kind of there's violations that happen to people in their childhood. It makes reconciliation really tough. Sometimes when we have kids, we can't bring our kids around certain people because certain things they've done. That's reconciliation, but forgiveness is letting it go. But we still use wisdom, though. So there's a balance. And we as a church, we're here to pray for you. If you're struggling, you're like, man, it will be really tough for me to reconcile. I get it. There's, I mean, some people. They sin against you a couple times, and then you, you start letting it go, and then bam, there's new stuff that happens. And it's tough. It makes it really hard. I get it. I haven't figured it out perfectly. But we're here as a church to walk with you in the world. word. We want to pray for you and, and, and fast with you. You know, maybe you need to fast about somebody that you need to forgive. There's biblical counseling. There's biblical therapy that you may need. Get help. Speak to Pastor Bobby. Speak to your elders, your leaders. Don't be afraid to seek professional help if you need it in order to forgive and be made right with God. Man, I mean, just think about this, how tough forgiveness is. Some people have had to forgive the person that ended the life of their loved one. Can you imagine how tough that is? I mean, there's been so many court cases I've seen where someone gets on the stand and they're like, Man, you you killed my father. You you killed my my brother, my my daughter, my sister. But I forgive you, man. Only the power of God can make you honestly forgive someone in that situation. I knew a guy I went to college with his dad killed his mother, and so his dad was in prison pretty much all of his life. And can you imagine the person that killed your mother is your father? I can't imagine. How hard that is to forgive and even try to reconcile. How do you reconcile that situation? It's tough, brothers and sisters. And there's a lot of shallow forgiveness and reconciliation in the body of Christ. And that's not what God desires because Jesus desires true biblical forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance in the body of Christ. Because guess what? God is our model, and there's nothing shallow about the forgiveness He extends to us. There's nothing shallow about the reconciliation that He models for us. Through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So, I'll remind you, brothers, forgiveness is a command, but it's also a process. It takes time. Forgiveness is a command, but it's also a process. And I want to remind us that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. We could forgive, that means letting things go, but reconciliation is restoring something back to what it once was. So, as I close today, I remind us forgiveness and reconciliation, we need to seek that as possible, as as much as we can, to forgive and reconcile with whoever has hurt us. As I invite the worship team back up, I encourage you today, if you're not saved, that you can find forgiveness through Christ today, that you can trust in Jesus, repent and turn from your sin today, find ultimate forgiveness in Christ, the forgiveness that will never pass away a forgiveness that will be here. If you were to die right now, do you know 100% certainty you'll be with God in heaven? Repent, turn from your sin, change your mind and surrender to Jesus today. He can forgive you of anything you've done. He died and rose again three days later, defeating sin for you. To believers gather here today, pray for the Holy Spirit to give you a greater capacity to forgive. Pray that the Holy Spirit brings people to mind that you need to forgive and seek reconciliation with. Ask God to help to bring reconciliation in our lives, whether you are sinned against or you sinned against somebody else. Because God commands us all to forgive one another. But he gives us the grace and the power to make that happen. Join me in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. I pray that you continue to work in our hearts and our lives, God. Help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. Help us to be sensitive to the spirit. It's not going to look the same for some of us. Some of us can't reconcile. But we can control if we forgive. We can't always control what the other person does. But are we doing our part? To live at peace with all men, as your word says, that's the goal. To glorify Jesus. Thank you for modeling forgiveness for us. For your death, burial, and resurrection that empowers us through your Holy Spirit to forgive and reconcile. Help us not to be like the wicked servant who was forgiven of so much and ignored what he was forgiven of. Empower us right now, Jesus. and we pray and believe all these things, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.